Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm pleased to say we have Jennifer Guglielmo on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Living in Revolution, Italian Women's Resistance and Radicalism in New York City. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Today we are talking with uh, Jennifer Guglielmo about her terrific book, Living the Revolution, Italian Women's Resistance and Radicalism in New York City, uh, 1880 to 1945. This is a terrific book in what I would call sort of immigrant and labor history. It also touches on gender history, so it crosses all kinds of boundaries. She uncovers lots of new things. She destroys stereotypes. She obliterates previous hypotheses and what we thought we knew. So it does all the things a, I want to say revisionist, but it isn't a revisionist book because there really wasn't anything written before to revise. So it's path-breaking. I guess that's the word I'm looking for, path-breaking book about Italian uh, women as they made their way from 1880 to 1945 over the United States and sometimes back, uh, which is an important thing we need to touch on. Uh, Jennifer, if you could do me the favor of beginning the interview by saying a few words about yourself. Uh, Sure. I am a professor of history at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. I um, have been here for nine years, and um, before this book, I um, had co-edited an anthology on Italians and race in the U.S. with Sal Salerno um, that had 17 essays that looked at Italians and kind of the systems of race and racial identity and race formation in the U.S., um, and so this book, um, but this book is, um, this book was something that took much longer to do it's my own project. Um, so I guess that, and I teach at Smith, I teach courses in immigration and women's history and U.S. history, modern U.S. overall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Terrific. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to uh, choose this topic and then write this book? Sure. Um, when I started graduate school in 19, I started in 1991. I was in a master's program in the University of New Mexico, actually thinking that I was going to pursue Native American history. I had done a senior thesis in that field at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and was there was so little of Native North American history in my education that I wanted to know more. So I went to New Mexico to study that and ended up also studying Mexican-American history and um, I took a course. Uh, I'd always been interested in histories of women's activism and radicalism. And um, and so I took a course on Chicana feminisms. And that class, uh, it was in part the professor. It was in part the other students. It was a small class. All of the women in the class were Mexican-American. They were from New Mexico and Texas. Um, and they were doing research on their own community histories. And there were there were 
two things that happened in that class. One was I, I saw the connections between Italians and Mexicans in, you know, of course, the kind of Catholicism, but also in just peasant histories and histories of struggle and working class histories. And so I began in that class to really, it resonated so much for me on so many levels that I began to think about my own cultural um, background and the kinds of, and my own ancestors and the kinds of lessons that they had passed to me. So in the midst of that class, I, um, I, I decided to look and just to see what had been written on Italian women. I was really, you know, curious of studying. I'd kind of studied all these different women's histories um, besides Italian women. So I, um, this class, I think, for me, legitimated that you could study your own people and mm-hmm. it, that it could be rewarding and, in, and really important and worthwhile in shifting narratives that were disparaging. And so I, I began to look, and I was really shocked to see that very little had been written. And what had been written was, was um, I, you know, I say slanderous because it, I do take it that seriously. I mean, it was, it was, um, it was one narrative after another that that described Italian women as very passive, as very reticent, as not active politically, as um, as very dominated by the men and their families and the and the systems of power in their lives, whether it was landlords or the church or you know priests, etc. And um, you know, I knew that, of course, having grown up in a blue-collar Italian-American family, I knew that that certainly women struggled, and they struggled a great deal for their own autonomy and dignity and self-determination. But it, it just was such a flat narrative, and it was such a simplistic one. And it didn't really resemble any of the women I'd grown up around. So I um, then I began to go into the archives and see what I could find to correct this story. And when I was, you know, at that time in the early 90s, I started, I found a a group of oral histories on women who were in the garment industry in New York in the 1930s and 40s that somebody had conducted in the 1960s. And, um, and so my master's thesis at the time just analyzed this collection of oral histories. And, um, and I, I was found that to be so rewarding that I decided to go on for the PhD and um and you know brought in everything brought in my source base brought in my chronology and just write this book essentially mm-hmm. that, that must have been a brave thing to do i mean i can imagine looking for an advisor in a field that nobody has studied before that's a it was i you know ironically <laughs> had, there was only one person donna gabacha was there was really only one person um uh who she was the only one who was even beginning, who was dealing with this history at, in any way. And she was just trying to correct other narratives about Italian immigrants. So she was writing very transnational studies that mm-hmm. looked at um, Italians, really looked at Italy as much and all the other places Italians went to in addition to the U.S. So she was very focused on kind of transnationalizing Italian migration history. And um, But in her work, there was there was there were always little hints about what women and was what women were doing. So I knew that she was somebody I had to work with. And I called her up in those early days and told her about my project. And she was enormously enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. But she was at a um, at the time she was teaching at a college that didn't have a graduate program. Right. So 
I couldn't go study with her. So I ended up going to study with kind of the next, you know, important person in the field, who is Rudolf Vecoli, who um, was the director of the Immigration History Research Center at the University of Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, who was really one of the grandfathers of the field. I mean, he was one of the founders of Italian-American labor history, especially in radical history. And he had built this archive in Minnesota um, over many decades that um, he was, when he was doing his research, he realized that nobody was collecting these materials on Italian workers and their various organizing histories. So he began to collect all of these materials and created this archive. So it made sense for me to go to Minnesota at, this, mm-hmm. at that point and, and um, use those materials. And um, I received a fellowship that enabled me to work at that center and to work under him. You know, so but he never wrote about women. So that was it was it was challenging because I was working with, you know, the kind of quintessential patriarch of the field Mm -hmm. and um, but doing feminist history. Mm -hmm. And he was really open to what I wanted to do and um, and mentored me in the early years. And then Donna stepped in and was my most significant mentor um, throughout the entire project. I also worked with David Rodiger at Minnesota, whose work is on white workers and race. Mm -hmm. He was one of the first scholars to really look at the significance of race for white working class people and and to think about how that shaped their identities and shaped Mm -hmm. their movements. And I knew I wanted to work with him too, because I was really interested in race in this story and in understanding the racial journey from Mm -hmm. going from Southern Italy to New York and, you know, over the course of, you know, from the 1880s to the Second World War and what the Italian immigrant experiences with race and their children's experiences with what race were. So I had a good team between the three of them um, to help me kind of work through all the major issues I wanted to work through. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were right. You're right. It was, it was, um, you know, it was exciting though to be working on an area for which there was very little research and for which there was a hunger for knowledge. You know, I could every time I would go and present my work at various conferences or um, different centers, I saw that there was a real hunger. There was always like these, especially in New York, there would be these kind of throngs of Italian American women right. who would show up who were cultural workers in their own right, who were mm-hmm. poets and performers and um, literary critics and um, singers and, and, you know, musicians, and they would come and there was a hunger, you know, Mm -hmm. for all of us. And we knew these stories in our families and we were passing them down through our families, but they hadn't been documented. And so that was, it was exciting to feel as if I was, I was part of something that was, that there was a real collective desire for this history. And, you know, I'm really thankful to have been able to write this book. Yeah. I mean, that's a real blessing to have a kind of ready-made audience and to be serving them. I mean, so many of us, I'll speak to myself, you know, I, I read about people who've been dead for so long that, uh, <laughs> no, nobody cares except other historians. And, right. and so it's, you know, it's a little, it's a little bit lonely, uh, when yeah. only four people in the world read your work, but, uh, you know, I, I do recognize the fact that it's, uh, it's, it is a great blessing to, to, to get that kind of gratifying feedback from people and affirmation. So that's, I think that's really terrific. And also, I mean, you deserve, uh, uh, uh as the kids say, mad props, <laughs> for uh, finding the right people to work with. 
instead yeah. of just going to the highest ranked school uh, that you can get into. Right. Um, you know, so that is really the way it should be done. And I think it really paid yeah. off in your case. It really yeah, did. I yeah, and to go to where the archive was, right. to be able to live and work. I was working there too. So I really had this daily relationship with this archive for for you know, five, six years. Wow. So I, I looked at every single thing in that archive and that is what made this project what it was, that I was able to know the collections there so intimately, come to know, you know, everything there and have that kind of daily relationship. You know, usually, as you know, as a historian, you know, it's it's expensive to go do research. So especially I was a grad student, so I, it wasn't like I could, you know, a lot of us have to go for a week or mm-hmm. two weeks and find somebody to put us up and, you know, and, um, you know, one trip I made to, yeah, exactly. Couch surf and one trip I made to Cornell, um, because they have the, um, international ladies garment workers union records. I had to sell my car in order to go, you know? And so that was pretty typical. It is pretty typical for young callers. That's a good and, story right there. Yeah. That's, that's when you know your commitment yeah, to, uh, right. I hope to, you tell your students that <laughs> I sold my car for $700 yeah. and that's exactly what it costs for me to get there yeah, and, that's great. and pay for the trip. And, um, um, and so, you know, it's, it's hard. You go and, and you sit with records for a week or two weeks and try and absorb what's happening mm-hmm. in them. And instead I was able to live really at this archive for a long period of time and come to know the materials and, uh, in such an intimate way. And that was, that was an incredibly rewarding blessing to have that experience and um and it transformed this book because i you know it was research is something that you know there were some people whose names would appear and i would just hold on to them you know had an ongoing document with all Mm -hmm. the different names that were coming up and i wouldn't find out the complexity of who that person was for seven years yeah you know, I mean, you know, as a, as oh, a, yeah. as an, this, that this is our craft, you know? And so, um, so yeah, so it was great. It was a great place for me to be. Yeah. I was lucky to, sorry for the very loud plane. No, that, that's There's okay. a base nearby. Westover Air Force Base. I know it well. Um, so, you know, it sounds like a, t- a terrific experience. It sort of reminds me in a certain way of there's this famous story that Robert Darton tells about walking into an attic someplace in Paris or something where all these banned books were. And, you know, he, right. he just like, he walked in and just realized what he had. He's like, yeah, I couldn't believe it. It's like there are all these books that that really he'd never heard of and never seen, and they'd been banned. And he's like, I just saw it all right there, and I knew where I was going to be. So that's a great experience. I think it's a rare experience. Yeah, the the archive is a magical place to be. I mean, I I really – I teach the archives are incorporated into all my classes for this reason because there's nothing like kind of rifling through the papers of people who've lived before us and trying to piece together their story and you know there were these moments you know one of the moments that really shifted this book is you know I had been as a master's student really focused on the 1930s and 40s and and that was a period that I documented my book was a period where where tens of thousands of Italian women um, entered the garment unions at mass because of the Great Depression, right, because of the new power that labor unions had, thanks to, you know, FDR, and, and thanks really to the, to the labor movement itself that, that insisted that labor have a, have a role to play at the bargaining table with, with business owners and with the state. And, um, 
So I had, you know, I was documenting this movement at a time, you know, after 1933-34 when workers just walk out of their jobs in mass in order to gain some some bargaining power. They, um, you know, the unions are just flooded with this new membership. And, um, and it's an exciting moment for Italian Americans especially because the garment industry in New York City had been um, primarily Jewish up until then. Um, and or the garment industry and the unions had been primarily Jewish and by, by my, but by the 1930s Italians were numerically the largest in both the industry and the union so it it became a really critical space um, for the political culture of Italian Americans in, in New York and beyond because the Italian local in the International Ladies Garment Workers Union became the largest local in the nation after 1933 so it was a space where they for the first time had political power too mm-hmm. um so that was i started the book i really started actually researching the story with that history so i wanted to stretch the narrative back and understand like what was happening several decades before that you know what was happening in the 1880s 1890s etc so i was sitting in the archive looking through microfilm you know because this archive has this incredible <laughs> collection of italian language news papers they have the best collection of italian language newspapers in the country maybe even in the world for Italian, you know for italian immigrant the italian immigrant press and the anarchist press was of course fascinating you know it was just really gutsy and bold and and politically radical of course i mean you know so i was really inspired by that and just sitting there kind of looking through and sal salerno who's a scholar of anarchist um history was sitting next to me and we're both reading these together and talking and all of a sudden you know he he sees this essay and he looks he looks at me and he points to this essay because we hadn't seen a lot of women's writing in the in these newspapers you know the whole whole runs of them would have no, no mention of women as if women didn't really even exist so so um, he pointed out this article, and um, it was entitled Ribelliamoci, which means let's rebel. And it was by a woman named Maria Barbieri. And we sat there and translated it together. And it was a magical moment to realize that, you know, that women, that this one, this one essay then led to, you know, we discovered sure. that there were dozens and dozens and dozens like this. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of realizing that women's involvement in the labor union movement didn't even begin with the garment workers. It began even earlier, you know, mm-hmm. with, um, with women who were, at, who were textile workers, who were garment workers, who were, but who were um, active in movements that weren't even really that rooted in the U.S., that were, that were kind of more rooted in this transnational anarchist milieu. Um, and so that really changed the story, you know, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, just to see. And that's one of those moments where, you know, the archive just, the whole, a whole new aspect of the story becomes revealed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, when you see something that you don't expect, I mean, especially after you look at the same sorts of documents again and again and again and again, and yeah. you, see, you think you're never going to see anything different, and then there's something that just jumps out. That's different. And then you yep. follow that trail. Yeah. And that leads you to all kinds of wonderful things. It's, that sounds like a great experience. Why don't you, you mention that you sort of hunted back in history for the origins of these things. And yeah. As a historian, I love origin. And you actually begin the story in Italy, in southern Italy, in Sicily. Can you take us there and move us forward? Sure. Um, 
I realized, of course, that this, that's where the story began, because in order to understand why Italian women made the choices they made once they came to the, to the U.S., um, and my book really focuses on the New York metro area, which I, you know, includes kind of the northeast of New Jersey, right? Mm-hmm. Patterson, Hoboken, um, all of those, you know, Passaic, all of those industrial communities. Um, and so... Uh, I knew that I knew that the choices that Italian immigrant women were making in these communities were very much rooted in their experiences in Southern Italy, uh, their political experiences and social experiences. So, I went to Italy for um, for about four months and and did research and traveled all throughout the country because Italy's archival system is really quite different from the U.S. There is a state archives. And um, that's called Archivio Centrale dello Stato. And it's in one of the, the center of it is in Rome. And that was in a gold mine for information. But um, local groups have also saved records within communities in these places called uh, Centri Sociali, little social centers mm-hmm. that emerged. And so I also went to those and just looked, like you said, about the box of, you know, books, banned books in the attic. A lot of my experience with those places was a lot like that. You know, you, some old guy says, yeah, here, there's a box of this stuff. You're welcome <laughs> to look through it. And, you know, I haven't looked in the box for ages. And so I spent a lot of time doing that stuff. And um, and piece together, and then of course, reading scholarship in Italian. What Italians have written about their own history was really helpful, and um, and came to appreciate that you know, and that in Southern Italy, at the precise time that mass migration began to North America, that Southern Italians were engaged in really serious battles with the landed class, and um, and it was they were going on hunger strikes, they were marching into the local piazzas and demanding um, demanding food. They were demanding an end to the high taxes. You know, a lot of these communities were being taxed very, very highly because the Italian state forms late in, you know, in the 1870s and begins to tax its peasantry really heavily. And it's uh, the north of, Italy, north of Italy is imposing its power on the south. And the south is deeply impoverished, going through, you know, famines, droughts. And so people respond out of desperation. And, you know, there were stories of women, and they were primarily women, I discovered, because men were migrating as a result of this desperation. Men were going, leaving Italy in search of work, going to South America, going to um, Africa, Australia, going to Northern Europe, going, you know, traveling wherever they could find jobs. And the women were staying behind. And they were, it was their responsibility to pay these exorbitant taxes. And so they were the ones that were, um, you know, would show up in the piazza and go into the municipal building and drag out all the furniture and torch it in their expression of protest against um, uh, against the state. And so I just began to trace some of these struggles and look at where they were happening and what was unfolding and what, how was, what was their political consciousness. And so much of it was inspired by socialism and anarchism and this notion that all should be able to eat, that nobody should Go, go hungry. If there's enough food, then everybody should that everybody should be able to have access to it. Um, you know, they contested these hierarchies that only some should have good housing, that only sh- some should have good food, that only some should have access to land, and. 
um, and and they connected it with Catholicism. You know, they really kind of claimed a spiritual authority and said, "This is what Christ spoke of." And and, mm. and so they um, they began to organize, and and so that women began to migrate more in more in mass as the 20th century progressed, and they especially went to cities like New York, where they could immediately find work um, in the industrial in the industrial um, factories, and so they brought these traditions of protest with them and experiences of protest and their children um, I talk about this in the book really document how much their own political consciousness was raised by their mothers who told them about these stories of these um, revolts all throughout Sicily and southern Italy at this time. And um, and so Italian women come to the U.S. with these strategies of collective direct action. That's their that's at the heart of their politics in this period. You know, they're not in, they're not organizing political parties. They're not voting. They are showing up in, like I said, in piazzas, pissed off um, and and using strategies of direct action in order to be heard. And so they begin to do that in New York City, too. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Example: When an employer stiffs them on their pay, um, and this happens again and again, and they feel exploited, they begin to organize. They march past the factory. They throw rocks through the factory. They sit down in the factory. They refuse to work. You know, they're using the same strategies of direct action. Mm-hmm. Um, and they begin to organize anarchist and socialist groups much in the same way they had done in Italy. So I realized that I had to – Italy was such a critical part of this also because so many Italians went back to Italy. You know, over half of the Italians mm-hmm. that left Italy and came to the U.S. returned back to Italy, um, especially the men. And um, and then with the rise of fascism, so many um, – labor leaders were had to live in exile. So this relationship to Italy persisted, um, was a really kind of fluid relationship. There was a back and forth um, happening um, in so many ways throughout the early 20th century that I, I really needed to render that in the book. And so a lot of immigrant histories are written in the U.S. are written like with the first chapters in the old world and then the second chapters <laughs> in the new world. And that really was the paradigm for a lot of uh, immigrant histories um, of, of the generations before me. And so this book was really inspired by, I would say, the sociologists and anthropologists who work on contemporary migration, who look at contemporary Asian and Latin American migration. They were using a much more transnational, they are using a much more transnational lens to think about glo- migration, labor migration as happening within global systems mm-hmm. of um, exchange. And so I, I was so inspired by that work and it so resonated for the Italians that I thought rather than this old world, new world narrative, um, you know, that's also deeply embedded in kind of American nationalist, you know, myths about who we are. I really wanted to change that for mm-hmm. this book. So the Italy is, it's not as if we go from Italy to the U.S. It's the first three chapters are very transnational and, and I'm crossing the Atlantic often and, and looking at how people move, how ideas move, how capital moves um, in order to understand the actual lived reality for these folks. Mm-hmm. Well, you point out something in the book, which I don't think can 
can be said enough because I don't know if the Italian experience contrasts with others. Well, actually, I do know it contrasts with some others. But yeah. as you say, many Italians came to the United States, but they also went to Brazil and Argentina yeah. in great numbers. Yeah. And they also came back in great numbers to Italy. It's not like they had uh, – they, 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 they sort of were striding the Atlantic. They didn't you – know, they, they lived in both of these worlds. They lived in this world that was on a ship a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and I don't – you know, you, yes. you, you get this stereotype uh, of – uh, you know, you watch The Godfather or whatever. I don't know any number of movies. You don't get this this really fundamental fact of life that yeah. really we want to go back probably many of us and many of us do go back and we're coming back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and but I, I mean, I think honestly the narrative is – the narrative that Americans generally have, especially people like me, is largely from the Jewish experience. And that is right. we're leaving and we ain't coming back. Right. Because this okay. is the new world and we're going there and the old world, bad, bad, bad. Right. And they were, that's right. It was bad, bad, bad for them. <laughs> but that wasn't the sort of typical experience. Um, you know, for almost any group of people, I'm thinking of Czechs, for example, here in exactly. Iowa City who came. They came back and forth too. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, a lot yeah. of groups. Because these were labor migrants. You know, these were folks moving in search of work. So they were going where the jobs were. Right. And the migration of women usually signaled that communities were beginning to form in new ways and that people were becoming a, were beginning to settle in new ways. Um, so certainly the presence of women and um, signaled that the community was was moving from becoming less transient and becoming a little and creating community in new ways. Mm-hmm. But even so, even even with that, you know, these were all these were still people whose, you know, whose consciousness was still very much rooted in Italy. They were they were constantly, you know, they were they were there were always new arrivals coming with news of the homeland. You know, people were going back and forth often enough. Um, you know, this was, in fact, for many social reformers in the U.S., this was quite irritating because they felt like these folks weren't really committed to becoming American. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't naturalizing in significant numbers. They weren't learning English in um, in any large capacity. And, um, and you know, they're, they're their social worlds were so centered on Italy. Their religious festivals, their their the way they were politically, everything was still, um, you know, so, some of the social reformers, as you know from my book, I talk about this about how they're, you know, they just feel as if these folks don't even realize they're in the U.S. You know, they're still acting as if they're in Italy, mm-hmm. and um, so that's that was very much, you know, it took Italian several generations to engage with American politics in the ways that that um, those in power wanted them, yeah. you know, yeah. in the ways that, that they that they were prescribing for well, what it took and, to become American. And I think this is a useful historical uh, corrective to kind of put it in a contemporary perspective. You know, there's a complaint in the United States that many Hispanics, especially Mexicans, are not assimilating very quickly. Exactly. But by late 1900s, they're assimilating incredibly quickly. You know, you really won't meet many exactly. Mexicans, you know, some English. Whereas you exactly. could go two or three so generations yeah, of Yiddish yeah. speakers and Italian because they didn't know English at all. Precisely. I mean, that's the, I think the irony is that I think personally that, that it would be interesting to, if you could do a study on this to see the assimilation rates, you know, but because assimilation is such a subjective, um, right process, but you know, nevertheless, so many, there were so many Italians who lived their entire lives here that never spoke a word of English and never naturalized, never desired to become citizens. And, that was the dominant experience for Italians. Yeah. The majority of Italians felt that way. Right. And so it is ironic now that the descendants of those folks are, are frustrated that new immigrants aren't adjusting more, you know, faster, more readily. Yeah. You know, I heard it from my, my, uh, the folks in my family. 
<laughs> you know, be frustrated by the in, in Korean immigrants and how they only speak their own language. All the stores are in Korean, and you know, I would say, well, it was this, it was the same for Italians, yeah. you know. And I'd point out, you know, that my great grandfather didn't—he lived here for you know eighty years and never learned a word of English. Wow, he refused yeah. to speak English. So yeah. it was, there is a—that's a big part. One one of the big themes of my book is this kind of intentional forgetting and um and how much becoming american requires forgetting certain aspects of your history in order to conform with the expectations of what it means to be american yeah i remember in the 80s when i first went to i went to a a family of a a fellow fellow student or we were students together in college and she was russian she obviously spoke english perfectly um but we got into her house and her mother spoke russian all the time and uh she spoke English back to her mother. Her mother understood English but couldn't right. speak it. That and was, that's how they talked. Yeah, that was very common. <laughs> they were very common. Yeah. That's the relationship between the first and second generation. Yeah, I was like, that's amazing. I, can't, that's, I yeah. don't understand that at all. But anyway, so bring us forward a little bit. I'm very interested in the um, way in which – I'm very interested in this word um, – um, anarchism. Yes. Because it's, it's, our, the way we think of it is just not the way that they thought of it. Uh, so true. If you could talk a little bit about what it meant to them, how it related to socialism and communism and the labor movement, and how, how it was sort of adapted to the American context over a period of time by these women. Yes. Um, you know, so many, for many of these folks, they, their first encounter with anarchism or socialism is in these social movements in Southern Italy, right? So, so to them, it's, it's a, it's a very, um, kind of practical and very basic, you know, these are not, at least initially, these folks were not reading political theory. They were, they were, um, you know, they would later, I think they were developing these ideas and then coming into contact with folks who were more politicized. They were forming little groups and then they would study and learn political theories and begin to see that, that their beliefs, they had a name, you know, yeah, by, through yeah. which to, what, to call what, what it was that they were already doing. Um, so for many of these folks, anarchism was quite simply the movement to create a world without systems of authority and domination mm-hmm. and systems of exploitation. It was that basic. And, um, and it, they, they strove to create that world through, um, through these, through small groups of solid solidarity with, with other, other people. Mm-hmm. So through the mutual aid societies primarily, um, and they created these mutual aid groups really to provide services for their communities to, to really embody their beliefs, right? They believed that nobody should have more than somebody else. Um, you know, that somebody shouldn't have a, you know, access to resources if somebody has no access and they believed in, in kind of a, collectivist, right, cooperative way of living. And um, not that people couldn't own private property, right? I think that's one of the misunderstandings, you know, is that people can't have their own clothes or they can't have their own home. It wasn't, it wasn't taken to that level. It was very much about systems of power and about what it meant to live in a society in which some people didn't have power over other people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they struggled over what that meant. It meant, um, many different things to everybody in the movement, you know, to some people, um, you know, and this is one of the things that was interesting in looking about women in the movement, because women really struggled with men in the movement about this, because, 
they, you know, they, they would say, you know, okay, well, if we're going to actually live this ideology, then this yeah. means that men can't serve the authority <laughs> over with. Yeah, yeah. I and think she, we're, I think we're still fighting that battle right yeah. now. <laughs> and then mothers even thought thought it through, as you know, for my book, that they really, I document this, that they were really thinking through, like, what does it mean to parent children in ways that are not coercive or ways that are not authoritarian that encourage their 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 um their autonomy and their the expression of their innate self and and um but that are also good parenting practices that are you know mentoring them and helping them to understand boundaries and all of that they were really working through what it meant to create this world in the everyday in their most intimate relationships and they believed that if they could do it on these levels right if they could create a little anarchist world in their families in their communities that that would grow and inspire other people so it was a movement too that that really sought that where the title of the book came from was living the revolution was that this was this was a group of folks who really sought to embody their ideals. Revolution wasn't something they were waiting for. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something they were imagining would happen at some point. It was something they believed that they needed to live in the everyday. Mm -hmm. And, um, but there was great disagreement, and they argued endlessly about strategy, about tactics. There was, you know, the most um, publicized anarchists, of course, those who believed in using violence as a as a method of um, as a method of revolutionary struggle. Those who believed in assassination and bombings and in really aggressive stances. But ironically, they were in the minority. From what most scholars, every scholar I'm aware of, has argued that that those who argued for the use of violence were in the minority, but they were the ones who really terrorized people in power. So they um, they became the face of the movement, uh, even though even though they were in the minority, and um, and so mostly. You know, most folks did advocate for some use of direct action, right, in the in form of strikes or in the form of boycotts, um, and they they thought that that collective action was better used in those ways rather than in in assassinations. You know, pe- many people in the movement feared that assassinations would lead to retaliation, and it did. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but you know, the thing is, is they always had compassion for the people that would commit those acts. Um, they always felt as if, you know, there's this one story, uh, I'll see if I can find it quickly in the book, that, um, you know, there's this uh, community in Patterson. Patterson, New Jersey is really the heart of the anarchist um, world, of the Italian anarchist world. And it becomes a site that um, the federal government is watching very, very carefully because, you know, they're very concerned about the, the radicalism in that in that community. And... Um, you know, they fixate on various characters and um, and conduct surveillance and raid their homes. And, um, you know, for a lot of people, it was it was it was hard to be active in this movement. You know, this was a movement that, um, you know, met with a lot of opposition and was quite dangerous to be involved in. Um, but there's a story of Ernestina Cravello. And, you know, she let's see if I can just give you a little piece of her story here. Um, she was active in the Patterson scene. She was a textile worker and, um, she was somebody who, you know, herself didn't engage in, did not engage in violent acts, but she had sympathy and understanding for those who did. 
And so there's this moment when she is, um, let's see if I can find, here it is. Um, right after um, Gaetano Bresci, who was an Italian immigrant, you know, assassinated King Umberto in 1900, the, um, the, Itali- the Italian and the U.S. government begin to work together to track um, anarchists in the U.S. because they're very worried about them. And so after Bresci, um, after his deed, a wave of repression and anti-Italian sentiment kind of washed over the anarchist movement. And they focused on Patterson as what they called was the world center of um, of the capital of world anarchism. And it was an important place. Um, So in searching for a conspiracy, and I'm just going to read you a little part from the book, the press fixated on Cravello, an outspoken anarchist. Reporters came across her at a local meeting where she spoke passionately about her beliefs to an enthusiastic crowd. They followed her to the Paragon Mill where she worked and noted that as she emerged from the factory with a group of young women, she was immediately recognized by a crowd of reporters who rushed to speak with her. So they describe her, right? I'll I'll just paraphrase here a little bit. And the press always love to describe the women, which is interesting. You know, they always have, you know, dark brown hair and they always have (laughs) eyes full of fire. I always thought that was funny. Um, So they ask her, they basically... uh, you know, they, they focus on, they just, des- they describe her youth. They describe that she has a rudimentary education. Um, and they quote her as saying, they ask her about what she thinks about what happened, you know, about Bresci's intention to kill the king when he returned to, or that she knew it. They ask, sorry, that, uh, let me just rewind. They ask her what she thought about what Bresci had done. And she says that, um, you know, she said she said she must have said to the press that she was um, or the press documented that what she said was that she was happy that someone had done so. Mm. But she was outraged, said that she had been misquoted and was depicted as fanatical. Right. As many of them were in the press. And so she wrote to a popular Italian language daily, um, Il Bulletino della Sera, to clarify her position. And I think this is a really important quote because it, it explains what anarchism meant to so many of these folks. She said, quote, they are only right in the fact that I am an anarchist. This is because I am moved by the suffering of hundreds of millions of workers, and I struggle for a world in which such exploitation is no longer possible. Mm-hmm. End quote. And that, to me, that the struggle that she faced with the press was so characteristic of, of you know, these were folks struggling to build a new world, but they were constantly disparaged as fanatical in the press. And and that that disparagement had real material consequences. It meant that, you know, their movement was being crushed um, mm-hmm. throughout the entire period. And um, in the end, it meant the end of the movement for many of them mm-hmm. um, and the end of their activism in the movement, certainly by the 1920s, when it really became untenable to be an anarchist in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but the sad thing is, I think that, that um, the fixation on on anarchism as meaning, you know, chaotic or violent is, has really obscured the, um, you know, the folks in this movement who were, who were really just wanting to create a more humane society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. I, I want to ask you two questions about uh, the cohort of people that, that, that have this, uh, you know, a very laudable uh, belief. Um, and it faces both outward and and inward. And outward, I want to talk to you a little bit about how they related to the sort of broader socialist movement in the United States and, right. and elsewhere, and also the the union movement because they come involved in the union movement. Um, but then, on the other hand, and you might address this first. Uh, 
How did they try to bring these issues to life on what we might call the home front? And I'm speaking specifically of domestic violence and things such yeah. as this, uh, because you know this is a you know this is a this is a problem everywhere at this time, everywhere all over the world. Yeah. And you know I know that I know what socialists said about it. At least Russian socialists, they said, "Don't do it." <laughs> you know, right. bad news. Can't do that. Over. Uh, that didn't work. Yeah. Right. I'd just be interested to see how they, you know, how they dealt with this issue. Yeah, I mean, I think that that the way Italians, you know, the the anarchists, I should note that the anarchists were really a small component of the Italian immigrant community overall, but they were very vocal and they were they were probably the most significant, you know, kind of community on the left for Italians. Mm-hmm. They were the ones, the Italian anarchists were the ones that really led the way for, for labor organizing among Italian immigrants. So their history is deeply significant to Italian American history, even though they were such a small part of the you know demographic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think they pushed labor unions to not become authoritarian, to not become hierarchical. They, you know, Italian anarchists were at the founding meetings of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, and they helped to bring the IWW into their communities. And for those who aren't aware of this history, the IWW founded in 1905 was, you know, the only labor, industrial labor union at the time that organized all workers regardless of race, um, regardless of skill or craft, regardless of gender, it really sought to create one big union. You know that was their motto um, of the laboring classes. And Italian anarchists were were really central to the founding of that organization. And and so I I think the Italian anarchists, their role was to um, at least in this early period was was to challenge the anarchists or challenge the socialists to to um, incorporate some of the anti-organizational tendencies you know which were really to think through what it meant to to become um, an organization and how to do that without hierarchy and without power relationships um, and that was complicated like you said I'm um, you know, they, this were these were things they they were ideals that they held in their hearts, and then they tried very messily, as um, you know, of course, as all folks engaged in these kinds of struggles, um, as it is for all folks engaged in these struggles, that they tried to enact them and and did so in ways that were, um, you know, that it was hard. It was hard to walk the talk, and mm-hmm. um, and I think around issues of domestic. Um, violence and other forms of violence within these communities that the anarchism gave it certainly gave women in the movement a set of tools with which to critique power in their families mm-hmm. and um, to think through what it might mean to create marriages that were based on desire and love and rec- reciprocity and cooperation and um, and to begin to form those marriages and this, you know, the free love movement, as it was called, Amore Libero in Italian, mm-hmm. um, you know, people always think that that was a movement that just meant non-monogamy and, um, and promiscuity. But instead, it was, they really sought to create unions that were non-hierarchical and, mm-hmm. and that were of free choice. And, you know, amore libero or free love was like the freedom to love, to create a relationship that allowed for freedom and allowed for love. And 
And so that was such a big part of the movement was thinking through what that would mean. And I think in many ways, one of the things I document in this book is just the ways in which men and women in this movement together were redefining what partnership meant in a marriage. And I think that was one of the things that I was unexpected for me when I began research. I didn't realize how many of these marriages were, were so um, revolutionary and, um, and we're really providing a model for an entirely different way of relating, entirely different way of building family that would then become really significant in the 1960s and 70s. But you see the seeds being planted in this early period. And, um, and they were concerned with violence on all levels, on sexual abuse. Though, you know, the women who were writing in the anarchist press were exposing priests who were sexually abusive. They were exposing men in the movement who were abusive. They wrote about rape. They wrote about, um, you know, just sexual abuse overall. Um, they wrote about sexual harassment on the job. You know, they, they were making visible um, things that were taboo to speak about. And the anarchist movement gave them a, a space in which they could do that and um and they took it you know and so that was that was one of the surprising things for me is i didn't realize you know i really thought going in that these were things that became more articulated in the 1960s and 70s and my students when they read this the, my book that's always what they say is mm. this holy moly these folks were talking about this you yeah. know Yep. Two generations before, you know, it's that the folks organizing in the 60s and 70s are their grandchildren. Yep. And um, and in fact, in the memoirs of, of a lot of the people like Diane de Prima, you know, who was a who was a beat poet and really, you know, played a significant role in some of the cultural um, movements of the 1950s and 60s. Her grandfather was an anarchist. And so in a lot of in Mario Savio, who was important to the sure. free speech movement in Berkeley, right? He too came from a family of with radicalism in its past. So um, part of what I tried to do in this book is really document the that generation so that we could see the seeds they planted that that we continue to attempt to enact the kinds of you know ideals that they that they believed in. Mm-hmm. Um, we're almost running out of time, but this is so interesting. I want to ask two more questions uh, before we conclude, or maybe three, and that'll probably take us another hour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, uh, so uh, on the one hand, y- y- you've just said uh, correctly that after about 1920, it becomes very difficult to be an avowed anarchist or yeah. socialist or anything on the left. Yeah. And then uh, with the rise of fascism, um, there's a sort of shift in this uh, uh, in, in the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one thing I want to talk about. The second thing I want to talk about, not to put too fine a point on it, is how Italians became white. Yeah. Yeah. So if we could just start with what happens, the lure of fascism, you call it, and then we'll go to whiteness. Yeah. Um, it's hard to sum this up, but it, yeah, I re- this is, these are themes that are really at the heart of the book. Mm-hmm. So for any listeners out there who are interested in this, I, I really, um, I hope they'll read the book and, um, and, and, and think about these things. And um, so to begin that there is always a movement to crush this, this level of resistance and this level of organizing. And um, it's happening on many different levels, but it becomes more concerted and more organized in the 19 late 19 teens and early 1920s. And it's really connected to the federal government's ability to police its citizens. It doesn't have the technology to do that with the same, you know, it, in, as a result of World War One. really, it has new technologies that it can use to, to surveil its citizenry, and it uses it. And 
you know, you have the formation of a, of the Bureau of Investigation and of agencies in the federal government that are designed to, to kind of weed out, um, those groups that are, um, that are challenging the status quo and status quo at the time. I mean, when you go back and and look at this history, I mean, it's so, it's so kind of um, unsettling to see what was the status quo. So that if you spoke out against white supremacy, if you spoke out against U.S. imperialism, if you spoke out against the exploitation of working class people, that these were things that, that could be, you could be charged with um, sedition with um, being anti-American by claiming these things. And so people who were organizing interracially, who were organizing to end racial segregation, who were, um, who were in the labor movement, these folks were targeted constantly. And um, during the, the Red Scare, which really gets really begin this, you know, one of the major red scares of the 20th century, of course, is during the, and following the world war one, because of the fear of dissent um, during that war that the federal government, you know, was concerned that it couldn't wage a war without, you know, of course, anytime a nation goes to war, it needs the consent of its citizenry. And, and it was concerned that it would not have that consent. So it, it really attempted to focus and weed out any dissent and, and the Italian anarchists and Russian anarchists were one of the, and black nationalists and others were really at the target of these campaigns. Um, this, of course, culminates in the execution of two of the most prominent anarchists, Nicola Sacco and um, Bartolomeo Vanzetti in 1927, two men who many believed were falsely accused of a murder in Braintree, Massachusetts, of a robbery and a murder. And um, there's very little evidence to con- that either of these men convicted this crime. They were both active in the anarchist movement, and that becomes um, – that and this, this um, view of Italians as racially – other and especially is more naturally inclined towards violence and criminality becomes a real critical part of the case. Um, it's unabashedly racist in its um, depiction of Italians and it's especially Italians in the anarchist movement. And so when these two men are executed by the state of Massachusetts in 1927, it sends a chill through the entire movement. Um, to be active in this movement not only means that federal agents could show up at your house in the middle of the night and haul off your family members to Ellis Island to be detained for an indeterminable amount of time and not given access to food or water um, and kept in really unsanitary conditions. It had always meant that, you know, people had been hauled off in, you know, in the first decade of 1900. Um, But for the first time, it meant that the state could had its power to execute and to, um, and to, and to exterminate people. And, um, and the state goes after these movements, um, intensely. And so to be, and of course, brands anarchists as terrorists. And so for many of this generation, um, there was a, the beginning of a disassociation from anarchism because it was too dangerous to be an anarchist. Anarchist became, um, you know, the opposite of what an American was, and um, and it was it was just life threatening to be to be identified with this movement. So, interestingly, though, is the 1920s is also the of, I mean, it's no mistake that this that this coercive, what I call coercive nationalism, right, in the form of of um, the Red Scare is happening during the rise of, of fascism, right? They're deeply connected. And um, and so as, as um, fascism is, gains uh, more and more power, 
globally, um, the movement, the anti-fascist movement becomes deeply significant. And so what happens is a lot of folks aren't calling themselves anarchists anymore because of, you know, fear of reprisal, but they are now, um, they're calling themselves anti-fascists. Uh-huh. And um, so while the movement is certainly shifts a great deal because the Red Scare, it does not, it does not, it's not obliterated by the Red Scare. It just, it transforms itself. Um, but I do think that one of the consequences is that the stigma associated with anarchism is very real. And so a lot of, as I say in the book, there's a, a real amnesia about this history. People aren't passing down the knowledge um, and the stories in the same way out of fear, especially for their children. You know, so that it's very common that I met um, met people who were the descendants of like Mar- Maria Rota, who's one of the central figures in my book, who is a pivotal leader in the anarch- Italian anarch- immigrant anarchist movement. Her great her grandchildren and great grandchildren had no idea that she had been involved oh in this movement. That's common. Yeah. Very, very wow. common. Well, people will say to me, well, I knew that she, you know, had these strong beliefs, but I, you know, that's all they know. And it's interesting because they then I'll say, well, what were some of the beliefs that you grew up, you know, knowing about, you know, what did you know about her? And she would say, well, I knew that she really believed in systems of democracy, right? Like they would use that word instead. And um, and so I thought that was interesting that, that um, people were still passing down the ideals. They were calling them different things to protect their children and grandchildren. Um, In terms of race, I think that, that the journey of Italians with race, you know, Italians are, are Southern Italians, especially in Italy are, are conceived of as, um, as racially insignificant and, and not as insignificant, but as racially, um, unfit and, and inferior, um, especially by Italians in the North and by the rest of Europe. Um, Part of the project of nation building in Italy was about um, justifying Northern Italian rule over the South. And that justification relied on an understanding that Southern Italians were racially unfit to govern themselves. And the racial ideology imagined them as anarchist, right? As as <laughs> anti-democratic. You know, anarchism was designed defined as anti-democratic. And you know, when you read the literature, it's really quite incredible that that they're seen as savage because they don't accept the rule of more civilized people over them. You know, so. Um, so Southern Italians were very much imagined as kind of naturally inclined towards criminality, towards radical social activity. Um, and then those ideas, of course, travel across the Atlantic and really inform how the U.S. In- embraces Italians. And the irony, though, that I found is that while Italians were perceived of um, in the popular mentality as racially inferior in the U.S., that they couldn't go so far in the U.S., they couldn't go so far as to say that they were not white. Um, they were, they held this status, I think, for many years, certainly through the 1940s and into the 50s, as racially inferior whites. And and I say that they are whites. My brother actually is a historian, Tom Guglielmo, and wrote a book that I really, whose research I really drew on for mine, and his book is called White on Arrival. And one of the, <laughs> that's a good that's, part of, yeah, that's good argues, right there. Yeah, exactly. He <laughs> argues that, um, you know, that their whiteness is really established by the U.S. state immediately. And 
many ways it, it really was. He, you know, to be a citizen of the U.S., you had to prove that you were white in order to become a citizen of the U.S. This was something that was established in naturalization law of 1790 and persisted through the 1940s. So um, Italians and other Europeans, even though like Jews too, were conceived of as racially inferior, they could become citizens, unlike many other groups like Chinese, Japanese, South Asian, Indian, um, Koreans, etc. And so, you know, there is a real difference in the experience that they're having and those groups are having. Um, because citizenship means, you know, even though Italians weren't naturalizing in large numbers, it did mean you could represent yourself in the court of law, you could vote, you could be a political subject. And, and so, you know, part of what I'm looking at this book is this journey that Italians undergo, like the complexity of this racial location, you know, to be both disparaged as racially inferior, but to have some access to some really significant access to um, the wages and political status of whiteness and um, and to try and understand what that meant for Italians, that shift in their own identity and their own politics, Um you know, so many people think of Italian-Americans in this day and age as as very conservative, as um, as really providing, um, you know, as, as being a, a big part of the ranks of the blue-collar support for the right wing. And certainly, there, you know, that is a phenomenon that emerges in the 1960s and 70s uh, with the rise of the new right wing. Um, but I wanted to document that that wasn't an inevitability, that that was – that there's a reason – why Italians move on to the right and how it's really about their interpretation and understanding of, of what it means to try and make it in this country. And, you know, ironically, I found that, that the same desire, you know, the desire for economic stability, the desire for a decent way of life, the desire to provide for your kids, that's what inspired people to join the anarchist movement. When that no longer became viable in this country, the, the, the place where you went to, to live out those ideals wasn't in the anarchist or socialist movement. It was in, it was in increasingly in conservative politics, mm-hmm. ironically. And the problem is, though, is that shift meant that you were now defining your access to those things against the against other people not having access to those things, right? So that's part of. There is a tragedy to this story, I think, is that in leaving behind those the the movements that really imagined community in more collectivist ways. There's this move towards individualism that that really isolated, I think, Italian-Americans from other working-class people and continues to isolate Italian-Americans from working people. And I hope this history provides a, a lesson on what it might mean to to think about social struggle in this larger context, mm-hmm. not just for your own, but what it would mean for as, as the women in Southern Italy said, what it would mean for all to have bread for themselves and their children. Well, I have about 30 more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, but I we've taken up, right. believe me, I'm going to be asking you after we're done with the interview. The, uh, uh, but we've taken up a, a lot of your time, and I want to I provide a, a space for you to talk about your uh, current work. And so to our traditional final question on new books in history, uh, what are you working on now, Jennifer? Well, I am. One of the things I'm working on now is trying to make some of this the primary sources available to people. Um, 
especially from the radical newspapers. Uh, so when I found this cache of women's writing in the anarchist press, it blew my mind. And, um, and it's some of the most visionary, um, inspiring writing I've read in my life. And these are women who were not formally educated, who were factory workers, but who were teaching each other how to read and write and who were writing down their political theories. And, in the, in the radical press. And, you know, these were essays that were short, like a paragraph or two about what emancipation meant or what revolutionary motherhood meant and, or what, um, interracial solidarity might mean, you know, they had, they had real thoughts on these things. So I thought what I might do is, um, what I am doing now is, is collecting those essays and translating them into English with um, with several colleagues, with their help, um, and um, and publishing them to make them available to people, and especially to also make them available to students, because I find that if a student wants to do research in Italian immigration history and they want to work on the period before World War II, they have to be able to speak Italian. Everything is in Italian. Yeah. So this way, this material um, will become more available for students, for folks who are just interested in this history who want to see the documents for themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's. That's really the um, the bulk of my focus right now is on putting out this little book. And beyond that, you know, I'm not entirely sure. This book was such a labor of love. It yeah. took me 18 years from beginning to end, and I loved every moment of it. Um, <laughs> I really did. I I just loved working on this book, and so I I'm I want to give myself a, a time after this book came out and it came out two years ago to um to just enjoy yeah. the experience of of seeing what it inspired in other folks um to learn these histories but also to see what what the next project is i didn't want to dive into something right away right. um i wanted to give myself a little projectless period to to kind of see what what come what um to let the next project come and find me i guess well, to create you know, a little space you know. so it could do that I would say you can rest on your laurels a little bit because you found a field, uh, and, and yet not many of us can say that. Uh, so, yeah, you, you can take a few years off. Uh, I can't speak for Smith, but I think it's okay if you – that's okay. Um, anyway, we, Jennifer, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, we have been talking to Jennifer um, Guglielmo about uh, her book, Living the Revolution, Italian Women's Resistance and Radicalism in New York City, uh, 1880 to 1945. Jennifer, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you so much, Marshall, for having me on your show. My pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Jennifer Guglielmo about her book, Living in Revolution, Italian Women's Resistance and Radicalism in New York City. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.